Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that as a child most definitely would hoard catalogs as if they were real books. Uh, and I'm, you know what? I'm sad that I don't have them right now. <laughs> Although imagining all of those catalogs, most of which weren't even things that I as a child would be interested in buying. I just liked looking at the pictures. Imagining all the places I've moved in my adult life, bringing those catalogs with me was pretty laughable, but still wish I had them. Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 146. Today is part one of two of something so super fun and educational. Seriously, one of my favorite episodes I've recorded in a long time. My friend Jess Todd, who you all know and love from episode 81, where we talked about Tony Danza, all of the jobs that Jess has had over the years, and why the fashion industry ignores people over, say, I don't know, a size 14, maybe even a size 12, and sometimes a 10. Anyway, that Jess. She's the best. And she joined me for many hours of talking all about the history of catalogs. And wow, we had so much fun making this episode and the next one. I can't wait for you to listen to them both. In today's episode, we'll be tackling the early history of catalogs, including Sears, Montgomery Ward, and JCPenney, all the classics. We'll also ask the question... Why do so many catalogs begin in Chicago? Spoiler, we don't really have an answer, just speculation. <laughs> and then we'll touch on some catalogs of the 20th century, including Spiegel, a personal fave, Best, and Hammaker Schlemmer. And in next week's episode, we'll get into all of the teen girl catalogs of the 90s. Before we do that, of course, we have to listen to some audio essays from small businesses in our community. And today, we'll be hearing from Tracy of Pride Hauntwerk and Elise of Curio Mervosa, my favorite bookstore located in Taylor, Texas. So let's take a listen. I was your textbook responsible adult with three kids, a full-time job teaching, and a simmering little desire to create a totally different life. In my imagination, that life included more time spent in my home with my kids and my mom who lives with us, a less rigid schedule that someone else created for me, and, wait for it, the elusive work-life balance. This fantasy simmered for several years, and then a pandemic bitch-slapped the world. A pandemic that temporarily changed the face of teaching, and nearly every other profession, and provided me a glimpse into working from home, and I loved it. I spent an entire year teaching remotely and thriving, and then my fantasy fizzled as teachers everywhere were forced back into overcrowded buildings with subpar ventilation and, in my case, an anti-mask, anti-vax community protesting the mask mandate in schools. The 2021-2020 school year was the catalyst for change. I could no longer tolerate being a cog in an education system that does more harm than good to students. I was sick and tired of the creative block I was experiencing due to the overwhelming stress, and my mental health was deteriorating at a frightening speed. The pressure and increasing demands of being a special education teacher without adequate time and support was the breaking point, and I dove headfirst into building Pride Hauntwerk. My decision not to return to the classroom this fall was a massive leap of faith, and I do not regret taking that leap. Pride Hauntwerk is my small, creative, ethical business, and it's also my passion project. 
Pride Hauntwerk was born not only from my need to leave public education for my own well-being, but from a desire to help people preserve their beloved garments, to make the clothing in folks' closets fit them well, and to make pieces of clothing unique with visible mending or chain stitch embellishment. After taking a deep dive into the world of fast fashion and the immeasurable harm it does to our planet and the garment workers making our clothes, I felt compelled to use my creative skills to offer an alternative to sending damaged or unwanted clothing to the landfill. I promptly made the decision to take a creative business building course from Kelly Hogaboom of Bespoke Hogaboom, and I haven't looked back. This course taught me all the basics of having a joyful, creative entrepreneurship, and I've spent the last year plus slowly growing my skills to better serve my business. Then, long before I had everything figured out or a steady income coming in, I leaped. I left the classroom in June to save myself and to start working full-time on building Pride Hauntwerk and the kind of life I dream of. I continued to receive top-notch mentoring from Kelly, and I also have the privilege of working with Maggie Green of Maggie Green Style to build my brand and support me in so many aspects of growing my business. This new path means I spend my days creating, and the creating that I do cuts down on waste, reducing the impact of fast fashion on the planet, and helping my clients curate a more sustainable wardrobe. I have learned so many new skills as I take in different mending and alterations projects and develop new-to-me ways to visibly or invisibly repair my clients' garments, alter their current quote-unquote ready-to-wear clothing to actually fit their bodies, and chain-stitching elaborate designs to create wearable works of art. Best of all, I have learned to believe in myself. If you had told me at the beginning of the pandemic that I would walk away from teaching without a guaranteed income and healthcare to pursue small business, I would have laughed. But with mentors like Maggie and Kelly in my court and my amazing supportive family and a passion for reducing our impact on the planet, that is exactly what happened. Anyone who is interested in my creative work can find me on Instagram at pride.hauntwerk. That's P-R-Y-D-E period. H-A-N-T-V-E-R-K, and on Facebook under my business name, and lastly on my website, pridehauntwork.com. That's P-R-Y-D-E-H-A-N-T-V-E-R-K.com. I welcome folks to peruse my work, and I hope you like what you see. Hi there, I'm Elise, and along with my husband Alex, I own Curio Mervosa Books and Vintage in Taylor, Texas. Alex and I played in punk bands for years, so that DIY spirit definitely influenced us in starting our own business. I've also worked in small businesses for many years, and we now live in a small town where it felt possible to open a storefront. I love being able to try new things with the business and having the ability to pivot as needed. It also really means a lot to me to be close to the customer. We're a mom and pop shop and we've made new friendships with the folks who shop with us. The way we see it, we're not just selling used books. We're keeping resources out of the landfill, saving knowledge for the next person who picks it up, and offering a whole experience in each book. Countless people work to bring that book to life. We hope it lasts for generations, and that goes for the vintage and new items we sell too.
Since starting this business, we've learned that people enjoy shopping small and local, and we want to continue to encourage that. We've also learned that many people agree there's nothing quite like holding a real book in your hands. You can visit us at 302 North Main Street in Taylor, Texas, or on our website, curiomervosa.com. There's also online shopping uh, for new books, uh, bookshop.org. It's a great way to avoid Amazon while still getting books shipped to you, and we hope you'll choose Curio Mervosa as your bookstore there. Thank you so much. Okay, well, by now you know that I overthink everything I do, and that includes which audio essays I play together. It's not a coincidence, of course, right? And I chose to play Tracy and Elise's together because they both talk about something that I think is a key differentiator between big companies, big brands, you know, and small businesses. And that is that sense of mission, of values, of taking one's beliefs and priorities and playing them out within their business. Of course, all of my big fast fashion employers claim to have a mission. It was so trendy in the startup era. Although, to be fair, I'm not sure if my biggest employer did, other than, you know, making as much money as possible, which ultimately should have been the mission of all of my past employers because it would have been, you know, a lot more honest of them. I specifically remember that Nasty Gal had a mission statement written in our lunchroom in huge, curvy letters surrounded by, like, a floral motif created from chalk paint. I'm pretty sure... The whole thing was done by our receptionist. And it said something like, we want to empower young women to live their best life or something like that. Our CEO was from Lululemon and was this mission statement, which, by the way, we had to repeat at the beginning of every like all company meeting. It was mortifying to say it all in unison. Um, This mission statement was suspiciously very similar to the Lululemon mission statement at that time. And I know because my friend Sherry and I were complaining about the hypocrisy of the whole thing. And we wondered if it came from Lululemon, like a lot of the other weird cult-like faux spirituality slash empowerment stuff our CEO liked to spout. And yes, it was almost exact word for word. Um, I tried to look today and it looks like Lululemon has changed their mission statement since then. But we're talking like, 2015-16 era Lululemon. Anyway, the hypocrisy of this whole thing was both obvious and complex. Basically, the question was, who were the young women we were empowering to live their best life? Surely not the garment workers making the clothing we sold. Definitely not the buyers, designers, and the rest of the predominantly female workforce within our office all suffering from a litany of stress-related problems, from stomach issues to vision problems to high blood pressure to crippling headaches. None of us who were working 12, 14 hours a day, every day, for what to be stressed out, I think. Anyway, it certainly also wasn't the customers being empowered because they would receive low-quality, poorly-fitting clothing that would survive one wear at best while making them question everything 
about their appearance and every part of their bodies that doesn't sound as if they were living their best life. And it was certainly not the hundreds of customers who bought that one swimsuit for spring break that, yes, yes, it really did. It expanded and fell off their bodies when they emerged from a pool. Um, Yeah, I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but... After that particular spring break, I want to say it was probably 2015, uh, our customer service was just, I mean, it was just like a barrage of very upset customers who, you know, emerged from a pool naked in front of a thousand of their closest not friends at spring break. It was really, really terrible. Anyway, I guess they weren't feeling like they were living their best life either, and actually, Empowering young women to live their best life sounds like some vague word salad anyway, right? (laughs) The real mission of Nasty Gal and just about everywhere else I've worked was making money primarily for a bunch of rich white male investors and, of course, Sophia, the founder. The mission was seeming more important, more fashionable, more premium, more important than we really, really were. Both Tracy and Elise talk about using their values, their sense of ethics, their care for the planet and its people, and playing that out in the real real world via their business. Tracy mends things. She gives items new and longer life because she knows that nothing is disposable. And she's motivated by that mission to do better and better. Elise sees the value in books, in all items, really, and wants to ensure that people get the most use out of everything she offers them. I certainly can't say that for any of my past employers who focused on the volume, the huge sales growth year over year over year, the need to get as much stuff as possible into the hands of their customers as often as possible. It's one more reason to shop small. It's easier to find businesses that really share your values, that use them as the driving force for making decisions every day. They share these values, these priorities with their customers and their communities. This is one more reason that I believe, no, I I know that a better future needs many, many more small businesses and far less or really ideally no huge businesses. Thank you to Tracy and Elise for sharing your audio essays with all of us. I know it can be a very daunting task to record oneself talking and feel okay about it. I'm still adjusting to it. Uh, So thank you so much. I will share all of Tracy and Elise's info in the show notes. Please go give them a follow, check them out, you know, welcome them to our community or introduce yourself to them. Okay. Obviously, Jess and I have quite a bit to discuss about catalogs. They've only been around for like, I don't know, 400 years or so. So let's jump right into our conversation. Jess, why don't you remind everyone of who you are, reintroduce yourself, etc.? 
Hello, um, my name is Jess Todd. Um, I am a social media manager, content creator, mom, and a child of the 80s and 90s, <laughs> which means <laughs> I was extremely invested in catalog culture. <laughs> yeah, so I'm extremely excited to talk about it. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I've recorded a lot of really exciting episodes of Close Horus, but uh, like none has gotten me more excited than this catalog episode. (laughs) Uh, So many late nights of going down very deep rabbit holes of catalogs. And like you and I were talking about this before we started recording. And it's like you start reading about one catalog and it leads you to another catalog and another one. And it's like, wow, there were so many. And I thought of you today because I went to my post office box and Someone else's mail had been delivered into my post office box, which seems like not something that should happen normally. And it was just full of catalogs. But nothing very, nothing very exciting, unfortunately. Mm. But I was like, wow, catalogs are still happening, or at least (laughs) at my post office box they are. How exciting. How exciting. (laughs) So yes, they were gonna be talking about catalog shopping. Um, We're recording this on election night, uh, and I just want to say, Jess, I'm so grateful that we are doing this right now because it's nice to have this little mental vacation from whatever is going to happen in the next 24 hours. It's like you're inside my head. This rabbit hole of catalogs has completely helped me uh, steer clear of doom scrolling um, during the election. So. Yes, seriously, me I appreciate too. you. Me too. I appreciate you for doing this with me. And I, you know, I don't usually like have a drink while I am recording episodes, but today I was like, you know what? Treat yourself. It's election day, so I'm drinking this really weird stuff that uh-huh. felt on brand for what we're doing. It's called Mom Water. Have you seen this? <laughs> I have not. Um, yeah, it's like it's coconut mango flavored, which is like really up my alley. Um, Perfect. It's grain neutral spirits with natural flavor, and you know it's allegedly for moms, which is great. It's not carbonated, which is a little odd. It's one of those things that's like zero carbs, zero sugar. So it's basically like flavored water that is alcoholic. Alcoholic. Does it feel like it should be carbon carbonated? Okay. I would. Okay. If okay. I were gonna give mom water some advice. It would be to carbonate them because the flavor I like, but the carbonate, the lack of carbonation is jarring every time I take a sip. Yeah. You know, yeah. are you yeah. listening, mom, mom water? Are mom you listening? Because this woman is a, is a trend forecaster. I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. telling you. This <laughs> <laughs> is free, free business advice. <laughs> Basically, I, I'm sure you've gone to the Total Wine in Cherry Hill, New Jersey before. Absolutely. Okay, of course. So, I actually had them deliver to my house during the pandemic. Fancy. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we were like, Total Wine was like a destination for us during the pandemic, for sure, because there was no alcohol to be had in Pennsylvania. Um, but here in Austin, there are many Total Wines, although I call them Totally Wine, which makes it <laughs> way more fun. Totally. On our anniversary, I took Dustin to Totally Wine because he's been really into, you know, being a little bit of a mixologist. And I got him all these amazing vintage tropical glasses because, you know, we were like, okay, we really like tropical drinks, what some people would call tiki drinks, but we like hate, you know, we hate the, the cultural appropriation and like often like just straight up like racist cups and everything. Of course. With it. So of course. I spent... As I am known to to do, I spent a an incredible amount of time tracking down the perfect non racist tropical drink glassware that was vintage <laughs> for Dustin, and then I took him to 
Totally Wine on our anniversary. And I was like, let's buy you a bunch of ingredients. And then I, that's how I ended up with this mom water because that's amazing. If there's like a beverage in a can that is trendy. They have mm-hmm. like 1,000 incarnations of it, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. God, I the love more it. aesthetic yeah. the label, the better. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. And I don't, I don't really like drink that much, but there's something about that place that has me like loading up the cart and then yes. it takes me like six months to drink it. So I agree. Every time I'm there, I'm like, I should be that person that has wine. Just like has it on hand. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I have this fine, um, you know, I don't even know what to say. Like, <laughs> I don't know totally. about wine. Yeah, I have this really wonderful, like, insert name of great wine here. And yeah. while you're, since you're over, let's crack it open. Like, I, I always think I should be that person when I'm <laughs> oh, no, me too. And then, like, the reality is, like, no one ever comes over to my house. And so, oh, no, me neither. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, totally wine. So that's not what this episode is about. We're going to talk about catalogs. And I thought we could get started with the history of catalog shopping, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little dry. <laughs> but uh, I would assume so. Yes. You know, as so, most things built out of necessity are, you know, you know. <laughs> right, right. And so in my mind, I was like, oh, cat- catalogs. They're, I mean, we know that we have them in the 20th century. Maybe we had them at the end of the 1800s as well. But like it would seem to be a pretty new thing for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into. But actually, the first catalogs appeared on the scene in the 1600s. And there is one, the first catalog, which I did not put in my notes. It was like an Italian guy made it of like the books he could print. Um, and I totally didn't add it in here because I was, I figured, you know, I'm going to mispronounce his name. <laughs> Someone will like DM me about it. And I just didn't want to risk it. So yes, there's that guy, unnamed guy. And then in 1667, the English gardener William Lucas published what we can assume was the first seed catalog. Now, mail order did not exist, right? So this is the weird thing is like the early catalogs weren't like the catalogs we're going to be talking about where you would literally place an order, possibly by filling out a form in the center of it and mailing it off, right? Or calling a number. (laughs) None of those things existed, right? So this was just to be like, hey, here's what I have and here's how much it costs. If you're interested in buying it, come into our store, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And in a weird way, which we're going to get into catalogs that still exist if we go full circle are kind of serving that purpose now right Mm -hmm. so that is true right right so then catalogs spread to british america the colonies if you will uh and i i included this factoid because you live in the philadelphia area that's where we met uh benjamin franklin number one celebrity of philadelphia and you know to really, this day. To this day, amazing impersonator who like would come into the Starbucks I worked in in college to oh, yeah. uh, visit in full regalia. Uh, I, re- I definitely remember that guy. Yeah, for sure. He's like known for innovating a lot of things and pr- I mean, probably also being a jerk. Uh, oh, but, a big jerk. Huge, right. <laughs> huge controversial jerk. Yeah, but totally. Anyway. But apparently he's believed to have been the first cataloger here in North America. And in 1744, he created a catalog, and this is really scintillating, of scientific and academic books. Once again, you couldn't fill out a little form and send it to Benjamin Franklin and then he would ship you the order because guess what? 
everything I just said would confuse the hell out of people. Yes. Shipping, <laughs> right? Address. What? Right. I don't even have an address. I like you, you look for the man in the red hat and then you go right. And then that's where I lived on that. Yeah, road. exactly. Exactly. There's no US. Yes. No. Right. So basically catalogs back then were just to be like, Hey, here's what we, I have just in case you were wondering. Um, what really allowed actual catalogs to get closer to what we know now was the development of train service. And this was in every country where the train system was built. It allowed for, guess what, mail delivery, uh, more mail delivery to more places, and better efficiency than when it was just you know being delivered by horses. Well, mm-hmm. people on horses, but you know what I mean. Uh, right. Like trains really ramped up the mail service and the availability of mail and therefore allowed these catalogs to grow. So in 1845, Tiffany's, as in the jewelry company, their blue book was the first mail order catalog in the United States. So it was the first catalog where you could see something you liked and write in and say, hi, I would like to purchase this thing, send them the money, I suppose. And then I guess you're just sending cash in the mail, which is crazy. Right. And the, then there's that, that, that the, the fear of that, the anxiety of that is just like, I can feel it. It was a different time, <laughs> I guess. I guess. And, yeah. And then Tiffany's would send it back to you, like what you ordered back to you. I'm sure it would take some incredible amount of time. I also like, I don't know, have you ever owned anything from Tiffany's? I have not. Yeah, but me neither. I have. I worked at, for a short, short time um, on an editorial team at a um, luxury jewelry magazine. Oh, so I know just like from the photo shoots of those magazines, like how much security is involved in in just that. So, <laughs> so I'm no very doubt. like this is like I'm feeling the uh, the the angst, the mercury is rising for me. I know, <laughs> me too. I was I, I was shocked to read this because I was like, wow. If you had told me that the first mail order catalog was a jewelry company, I'd be like, oh. And then they went out of business, right? Because all the money and the jewelry got stolen. Apparently yeah. not. So wow. uh, we're gonna. T- I'm gonna tell you some even wilder, riskier things as I tell you this catalog story. So. The next catalog uh, arrived on the scene in 1872, and it was it was created by someone called Aaron Montgomery Ward. Yes, of Chicago. By the way, Chicago is like the spot when it comes to birthing catalogs. It's going to come up a few times here. Do we know why, or is that to, is that like put a put a pin in it, or no. it's just like a weird. That's just like a weird coincidence. I think it's a weird coincidence. And okay. maybe, even though like, I don't think of Chicago as being in the center of the country at all. A lot no. of people give it that way. So I would assume there was a lot of intersection of like rail lines and whatnot there. But that that makes sense. But also like it's, it's um, location in, you know, it's in the middle of the, more in the middle of the country than like the coastal cities or like, you know, where totally. these big shipping hubs are. Totally. And I think there is like something about Chicago because even now it still has some of that energy of being a place where people who are just real go-getters go and like they, the future is infinite and, you know, like they could, especially back then in this era of like, we're going to like take over the world with our American innovation and blah, blah, blah. Like the robber Baron era, like it makes sense to me. Yeah. So that's like Chicago without any scientific reason. No, no. Something that was feeling. So yeah. 
He produced his mail order catalog, dun dun Montgomery Ward. Uh, and his gimmick was that he was able to offer the lowest prices, much lower than your local general store, because he was skipping the middleman by selling directly to the customers, which interesting. I get it, right? Yes. Um, within two decades, uh, his single page list of products, that's how it started. It was like more of a flyer, you know, mm-hmm. it turned into a 550 page illustrated book illustrated this is not a photography era right so everything you were buying was from drawings which gives me (laughs) hives to think about i can see them in my mind's eye these right sketches over twenty thousand items in this catalog holy crap and that is something this continued on for a long time in the 20s He's Montgomery Ward sold prefabricated kit houses, which is also like a thing that a lot of these catalogs got into. Okay, pause. Mm-hmm. I am sitting in one right now. What? Are you in a Wardway home? <laughs> no, I'm not in a Wardway home. I'm in a Sears kit home. Okay, we're going to get to those. <laughs> now that I think about it, I'm like, yes, your house is obviously a Sears kit home based on all the drawings and blueprints I looked at last night. Yeah. I can totally, I'm like, oh yeah, I know which model it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's and I, so funny. of course you do. <laughs> okay. Um, what was so interesting to me, I mean, I think like, you know, we're obviously part of a generation that doesn't really build a lot of houses, but when you hear kit house, prefabricated kit house, you're thinking something that is like, I don't know, like a shed, right? Right, right, right. It's like a couple of sticks. It's like a, you know, a couple of nails maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll blow over in the wind, but yeah, you know, exactly. it's, it's fun. It's it's like just a craft for Yeah, exactly. You know. But these were like real ass houses. Test I mean, the testimonial there is that you live in one right now. I do. Right? I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. And when we bought it, it was it had been abandoned. So we completely renovated it. And you when we took apart the house to put it back together, you could see like the the beams were numbered. Like all of wow. the pieces of wood were numbered and that's how you would put it together. And it wasn't just the wood. It was like the pe- the materials for the foundation, the floors, um, the like um, the built-ins, like everything. And that would be in the catalog. You'd go to the catalog and be like, okay, and I'll pick out these extras maybe. <laughs> kind of like buying a car, you know, right, kind of like buying right, a car yeah, today, yeah. like the upgrades or whatever. Imagine just like UPS shows up and like drops off the your house, yeah. your house parts. Right? It's amazing. It's ama- I mean, it was a different time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And yeah. you'd go down. I mean, I know the, the, the person that b- built my house, he was actually in the advertising for it. He wow. was a doctor that like built this house. He had people build it, I'm sure, for him. But, you know, they went down to the lumberyard or t- not to the lumberyard. They went down to the Navy Yard in Philadelphia and like got the materials and brought them here to, Colling- to you know, where I live in Collingswood. So, um, yeah. So just the proximity to those places would you know you see a lot of more of those houses yeah you could have access to like you know the shipping yards and stuff like that it's so cool and we'll share some of these like catalog illustrations obviously they're illustrations of the houses that you could buy from montgomery ward or sears and like some of them are very elaborate in fact all of them are way more elaborate than you're imagining you know like like amazing incredible yeah oh yeah the the details and the quality like just unbelievable 
Absolutely. I think that even though Montgomery Ward was like the one of the earliest mail order catalogs, I do think that they copied the idea of selling these house kits from Sears because Sears sold them a lot earlier and a lot longer. But the designs are very, very similar. <laughs> Some of what I saw. I mean, just I, illustrations, obviously. Yeah, I'm going to have to look at them because I am just fascinated by these. I after. am obsessed with it. Like, I want one. Yeah, you know, I well, want to build a house. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can still buy kits. Did yeah. you know that? Yeah, you can still buy them, but I am sure they are nothing, just like anything. They're nothing like what you could get back then. No, you know? and and the idea here was that like any person could just build a house out of it, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and and obviously, like, you know, people did. It's it's incredible. Yeah. So Montgomery Wards, you know, was like in this business as a lot of catalogs were for a long time of selling everything, right? You know, mm-hmm. anything you would buy. It was like a general store in a book. And eventually Montgomery Ward had department stores and malls. I totally remember school shopping there when I was a kid. They're like all gone now. Um, but that Montgomery Ward was a pretty classic like mall department store, anchor store kind of thing. Okay. I don't okay. remember that. I don't remember that around here. But Maybe you guys – yeah, we had one at the York Mall. Okay. <laughs> it's like what I remember. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so next is one that you brought up before you're we getting started. Another like early catalog. This one's still going strong. Hammaker Schlemmer. It's uh, just so fun to say. It is. Just it is so fun to say. So fun. And Hammaker Schlemmer gets credit for being the earliest still surviving mail order business. And it was established in New York City by a guy named, believe it or not, Alfred Hammaker. In 1848. And originally, it just sold tools and, like, hardware for, like, builders, mechanics, that kind of thing. Um, And its first catalog was published in 1881. Now, you – I just, like, worked out so well. You actually received one in the mail recently. And I was just wondering, (laughs) are there any mechanics, tools, or builders hardware in there? Well, luckily, I am holding it in my hand right this moment. And – there's everything in here. I I haven't reached any tools yet, but um, <laughs> there's a oh wait a cordless tire inflator is in here. Oh, okay, um, practical. Yes. Um, let's see, rechargeable heated massaging stadium seat. That's not a tool. Sorry, luxurious. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting a bit off track. Going off on a tangent here. <laughs> I guess it's easy. There's just so many options. <laughs> um, a telescope, a health monitor watch, you know, the use. Wow. Um, the most powerful handheld car vacuum. Okay, so, that yes. sounds I kind so, of so we're want running that. it. Yeah, I mean I kind of do too. I need to get out my marker to start circling things <laughs> I would like, but will never buy. Like this is kind of like in the vein of um like Sky Mall kind of. Oh my God, totally. I feel like they are carrying on the Sky Mall legacy. So it's interesting, like a lot of the catalogs that were successful for the longest, they sort of started out being like, we kind of sell everything. And then over time, they found their niche, right? And Hamaker Schlemmer is is no exception. Um, They began to get really focused in the like 1930s and 40s on like new inventions, like being the first place you could buy a new invention was from their catalog. So like the first pop-up toaster, you know, uh-huh. portable radios. These were right. like mind-blowing, right? Um, so we're talking like the um, As Seen on TV uh, gear of its time. Totally, totally. But even things like just new kinds of like automatic coffee makers, right, that weren't 
uh, a percolator yeah. or rhinestone dog colors. Like they were a wild new idea. And then in the 60s, I mean, these were kind of luxury items, I would say, anyway. But in the 60s, they leaned into this, like, really wild, like, things people dream of luxury items. So in the 60s, they uh, started selling home bowling alleys that you would install in your house and have, like, a full-on, like, bowling alley in wow. your basement. Wow. Uh, you could buy a full, fully operational here in the United States London taxi cab to drive around. I, I don't know why, but people bought it. A whole ass car That's is amazing. what we're saying. A yeah. whole ass car. Yes. Um, And they had something called a nothing box, which was just like a box that you can like put your dreams in or something. <laughs> anyway, so they, but like it was very expensive, right? So they got. And then they're, they're guaranteed to come true. It was that luxurious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And so like this is when they like found their really like sweet spot. It wasn't about like things being cheap. It was about it being really novel, something mm-hmm. that you would see and never find anywhere else. And I would say that they maintain that even today. Um, as a lot of these companies go, especially these ones that have been around since the 1800s, eventually they were acquired by someone else. Um, and, you know, that person continued to like, or company probably continued to carry this mission forward. And actually in 1988, Hammaker Schlemmer was one of the first retailers to sell stuff online wow. with CompuServe, which was the first CompuServe. like commercial <gasps> online service yes. in the US. Yeah. And you, it's funny that you brought up SkyMall because in the late 90s, Hammaker Schlemmer offered products through SkyMall. Okay. And okay. in 1995, uh, Hammaker Schlemmer worked with AOL, America Online, to build a store on the internet as well. So they were like really, really early adopters of technology, which is interesting because like a lot of other catalogs, retailers, which we'll talk about today, they just like di- got into it too late in the game, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and failed, right? Yeah, it seems like that's their thing is being first because it's the first holiday catalog I received as well. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I like that. It's like, that's just like their thing. They're just like, we're going to be first. We're going to focus on being first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I like that they like, like leaned into it. So yeah. like uh, Hammaker Schlemmer is like infamous, famous, whatever you want to call it for having just some of the like craziest stuff you can buy like I searched them on the internet today and like okay you can buy for a mere $4,500 an animatronic singing bear that I suppose will care for your children uh for $10,000 if you have a little higher budget a straight up fully functional mini carousel that your children can ride um which I kind of wish I had in my backyard they have something called For a mere $5,900 human bowling ball, which is straight out of American Gladiators, it's like you set up the pins and then you get into like a big hamster ball and you get to go knock them down, which sounds kind of fun. Super fun. Um, Where would you store it? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't know. That ball has to be huge. Yeah. Um, If your like budget's a little tighter, they have a 3,200 classic traveling flea circus set up. (laughs) I mean, it's like... These are the things you see. I remember years ago, they were selling the, I mean, these are things like I've used, but never owned. You could buy 
your own swan uh, paddle boat. And I was like, oh, my God. The day I own a swan paddle boat, I will know I, I have arrived. I have arrived. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting because I'm looking through the catalog trying to find these, like, very, um, like, highfalutin products. I'm not <laughs> seeing them just yet. I mean, there is a $2,100 12-foot lit um, Christmas tree that you can okay, purchase. Okay. But so far, that's, like, it for the luxury. So I'm wondering if maybe... They're, you know, they're putting most of their, like, high luxury stuff just online. I don't know. They don't want to turn anybody off. <laughs> it probably is, like, the kind of stuff that gets pressed, but it's, like, mm -hmm. they probably sell one unit of. It's yeah. the classic pyramid of merchandising right. playing out right there. Right, right, right. Uh, but you said that uh, one of your kids saw something in the Hammaker Schlemmer catalog. Indeed, she did. Yes. <clears throat> this was probably three years, two years ago, three years ago. She saw a ride-on unicorn where you just sit on it and you just push a button on the handle and it rides around and you steer it. And it's kind of like, <clears throat> I don't know if this is any, is this regional? I don't know. But these animals that you can ride on in the malls that are, you know, close always, to death. It's always yeah, these it's malls always that the are dying like, malls. it's the yeah. dying malls <laughs> that like, it's not quite a mall anymore. It's like, it's like kind of like, it's a, it's a, you know, a, uh, an urgent care and um, some stores <laughs> and like maybe part of a college campus. And then you're like, the kids are riding around on these like very creepy, very, very creepy stuffed animals with like a small motorized motorcycle. Inside. <laughs> so she saw this in the, um, the Hammaker Schlemmer catalog. It was $750. And she said, this is all I've ever wanted in my entire life. I think she was like four or five at the time. So it wasn't a very long entire life, but you know, she was all, <laughs> that's all she's ever wanted. And so oh. I was like, Oh, that's, that's great. Hoping she'd forget about it. Um, <laughs> as I put it on the list, you know, whatever. And, um, then I found it on Facebook Marketplace for 75 bucks. Amazing. <laughs> I, I don't think to this day, I don't think I've had a great, I mean, I'm Facebook Marketplace is life. I wake up and it's the first thing I do, but um, I don't think I've had quite a, a, as an exciting experience with it as that. So, I mean, that's a hard one to top. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. I mean, so it's still here. The unicorn's here. She's in the basement. I guess she's okay. I don't know. <laughs> no, but um, yeah. So Hammaker Schlemmer did it. There sold you go. It. Sold, but not yeah, not through them. <laughs> now I just want to go on Facebook Marketplace solely to look for Hammaker Schlemmer gifts, just to know they're there. Like, who bought the human bowling set, and is it now seventy five dollars? Because then oh. I feel like I'd have to buy it and have people over and to drink all this wine. I'm going to get it totally wine. Yeah, there's and probably <laughs> one on there right now because probably. because somebody's like, I don't have anywhere to store it. Yeah, I bought it, <laughs> and then I realized. I couldn't put it away. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. So it's just like this one that the one person that bought it, it's just like slowly making its way around on Facebook marketplace. <laughs> There's a, there are a few things that I have seen on Facebook marketplace that I suspect are making the rounds. And this one would be one that would not surprise me. Amazing. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. 
Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. 
Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Okay, so that's Hammock or Schlemmer. While you're probably all saying, like, Amanda, what about Sears, right? Because Sears is, like, legendary. And, of course, Sears arrives on the scene in 1888, uh, started by someone, shockingly enough, named Richard Warren Sears. Um, He started selling watches through mail order in Minnesota, But like a lot of these businesses, I mean, what a time to be alive it must have been. Like you might get dysentery, but also like (laughs) you could become like the biggest capitalist ever. Absolutely. In 1894, so a mere six years after Richard Warren Sears starts selling watches, the Sears catalog is now 322 pages, all Mm. illustrated, of course, featuring sewing machines, bicycles, sporting goods, even you could buy a straight up full-ass car uh, that came from a company called Lincoln Motor Car Works of Chicago. See, Chicago's going to come up a lot. Um, Then the next year, in 1895, the catalog grew from 322 pages to 532. And it was just like, you name it, it was for sale in there. Yeah. Uh, the sales were just blowing up, like doubling year over year over year. And so by 1906, Richard Warren Sears had all the money in the world. He opened a full-on catalog factory in Chicago and the Sears Tower. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Uh, by then, people who, like, in that industry or just across the board – called the Sears catalog the Consumer's Bible. Okay. I'm actually looking at one right now that I found, uh-huh. and it, it says Consumer's Guide. And what's interesting is that it's the catalogs are numbered. So this one's number 110. Oh, wow. So this was like a big thing. Like people looked forward to this and maybe saved them. 
or use that as reference, I guess. Like I was looking at catalog number 110 and I'd like to buy the uh, motor buggy, please, for $395. (laughs) I would assume that there wasn't a lot of like product changes per se, like maybe new stuff would get added, but this wasn't like, oh, that car is so out of style now. You need this new car. Like I don't think, it probably was just building as they, I mean, I'm I'm imagining that the Sears catalog was way over assorted. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so in 1933, they decided, okay, like we have this major opportunity around the holidays. And so it, they re- released their first Sears wish book for the holiday season. And this was a separate catalog uh, that focused on toys and gifts. And, which was, and it's still going to this day. Still going, yeah. So <laughs> then, of them in my mail just today. <laughs> <laughs> also from 1908 to 1940, so before Montgomery Ward and much longer after, Sears was selling those kid houses. They sold, it's like hard for people to track this completely accurately because obviously like they didn't have computers and I'm sure a lot of this uh, – tracking of sales was done like by hand yeah yeah spotty record keeping for sure for sure somewhere between seventy thousand to seventy five thousand sears kit houses were sold wow so you living in one is, is like super special yeah you know? yeah so i only found out i lived in one accidentally i'd already bought it i had an infant at the time and i was in the um i was nursing her in the middle of the night and i just was like hey why don't i google the address of this house i just bought and as it turned out somebody had done an entire blog post on it they told me about the original owner and his family and what he did and there was like a, a clipping from the advertisement where he was quoted and like all of this stuff so it was just it was just really cool and um you know you can like I said you can tell like if you're looking at you know in the basement still you can see some of the things are numbered so yeah just totally accidentally happened also your house is so cute thank you so it's just like a double win I love her yeah yeah and it was like definitely brought back from you know it's a zombie house brought back from wow, there was like can... a hole in the roof where it rained into the house. Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah so. Wow. It's like hard to imagine that happening in Collingswood. Yeah. <laughs> right? True. That These were different times, though. Like people didn't really like weren't dying to live here then. Now as it's much like as they a, are now. Oh, forget yeah, it. Like yeah, dream. forget it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it. yeah. Three yeah. square miles and nine, list, <laughs> nine listings in a whole year, you know, so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So. Sears, we know, is like kind of a sad story. It declined over time. It got bought. Well, no, Sears bought Kmart. Mm-hmm. It's like the yeah. stores are closing, blah, 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 blah. I think I remember that era when it got really sad because it just yeah. like it all of a sudden was associated with um, things that were cheap at a time when things that were cheap were not like like it is today, like Target or whatever, where it's like it's yeah. cheap and it's trendy. It was just like it's cheap. And if you shop there, you're, you know, whatever. It's depressing, right? Yeah. But when I was a kid, Sears was like a pretty solidly middle oh, yeah. class That's, place to shop. Yeah, we absolutely shopped there. We had one in our town. It wasn't in a mall or anything. It was just like freestanding Sears. And I told you this before that in the like tool section, the tool and appliance section, there was a hot dog stand. Yes, and I remember time, you saying this. <laughs> every time I would go there with my family, my my brother would make up excuses for why he needed a hot dog. Like my grandma would be like, we just ate. But yeah, I know, but I didn't eat very much. And it would always end up with like us over. Usually 
my grandmother would just give us the money and I would go over with him because this is like Sears. It's a very safe place. Mm-hmm. Take him over to the hot dog stand that's right next to all the craftsman tools and get him his hot dog. It was the only food they served there. It was very strange. Yeah. Well, and, it, and then it just became associated that, with that, that for him forever and, forever, and ever and ever like, and ever. It's like Ikea and the ice cream cones, you know. It's the to- same thing. Exactly. You can't go and not get no. one. You feel like you missed something. Right, yeah, right. Totally. Something's wrong. I need to get my ice cream cone. So another retailer that like once was like flying high, but now we probably think of and get a little depressed is JCPenney. And JCPenney actually didn't launch a catalog until 1963. And that's because it was already a really successful chain of department stores. Rather than launching a catalog to really like, you know, drive the business as a whole, it was really more of a combination of marketing like literally being able to advertise JCPenney to people in their homes. And then, of course, it did over time drive more sales as well for people who weren't very close to a JCPenney. They could order online, not online. They could order over the, could they order over the phone? Probably. Probably. They could order yeah. the phone the or fill out the form. I would, I would imagine, right? Yeah. Then? Yeah. And so they could order. But really, it was like to get people to come into the store and go shopping, which is kind of how catalogs are really functioning now. Mm-hmm. It was so different, I guess, in that you could go to JCPenney, you could go to the catalog department and sit down there and look at the catalog and place orders from it there in the store. Interesting. Yeah. And then if they had the stuff, they would give it to you them. But if not, it would be delivered to your house. Mm-hmm. And so, like, like, you would literally go to one part of the store where you could sit down and place your orders. It's so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was JCPenney. And they kind of, they were innovators, which I know is shocking to hear when we talk about JCPenney. Although, I will just say, when I was in middle school, JCPenney sold Genco's, and that was pretty sick. <laughs> they um, did. Right? I didn't realize that. Okay. They had a moment. I worked at the, at Scream. Do you remember Scream stores at the mall? Yes. I, I worked there. It was my first job. Wow. And Jenkos um, and were like our thing. I remember like the Jenko Hypnotic was coming out and we were all like, oh my God, I can't, I can't wait for the Jenko <laughs> Hypnotic. Anyway, to think it was just like, I could have just gone to JC. It's over there. JC. <laughs> I know. No, JC Penny had like a moment and it was only a few years, but I remember they, whoever was buying their juniors clothing was definitely like looking at Delia's, which we're going to talk about Delia's in a bit. And like, of course we are. Of course we are, right? Of course we are. And they were definitely like, they were being smart. They were saying, oh, Delia's is like killing it. Let's Mm -hmm. try it ourselves. And so like, I actually have very fond memories of getting clothes at JCPenney during that time period. Okay. See, I didn't really because um, the store, I guess I didn't even realize there was a catalog, but the store was half an hour away oh, wow. at the Cherry Hill Mall. Yeah. So it was like, we, and my mom didn't, my mom never has really liked shopping. So it was all just like accessibility, I guess that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so JCPenney was like, you know, a trendsetter in the sixties by having a catalog, even though like they didn't need to. And this sort of set mm-hmm. the standard for using a catalog as a form of direct advertising. Like once again, sending that catalog into the house directly into a customer's home and advertising to them, right, in a new mm-hmm. way. And so this would could theoretically and, of course, did lure the customer to the store to spend money, right? Right, right. And they could also touch the product. Look totally. At the product, try, it on, try it on, whatever they need to do. And then 
On top of that, customers who didn't live near JCPenney could also shop from the brand. And so it ended up being a really great thing that everybody kind of jumped on copying Um, because it was like a combination of like, you're going to get new customers who normally couldn't come to your store, check, but you're also going to get these people who already were customers. They're going to get this catalog. They're going to see all the stuff that they want, you know, while they're just browsing it at home. And they're going to come to your store specifically to buy even more stuff. And so it was Mm -hmm. like the catalog was like paying for itself. And this kind of became like even more popular as we got into the 80s and 90s. Like, for example, Victoria's Secret is a prime example of like in the 80s. I mean, they opened a ton of stores and that drove a lot of revenue. But in 1982, when there were still just only a few stores, the catalog sales were more than half of their annual sales. Whoa. Yeah. You can't put a price or a number, I guess, on how many people got the catalog and then went to Victoria's Secret just because they saw the catalog. Right? Right. There's no way of yeah, there's no way of, yeah. Totally. And right. J. Crew was the same thing. They saw explosive growth through the eighties and nineties thanks to that combination of the catalog and the stores. Okay. Yeah. That was another one. J. Crew came to my house. So it was like my window into the fashion world. <laughs> and I remember in the 90s, like the J. Crew catalogs were so beautiful. They were. Just the photography were. was so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And it wasn't like, like when I think of a JCPenney catalog, and I'm probably totally wrong, but it's like a white page with like people cut out like on the pages and like the black you know, lettering or whatever. Mm-hmm. These were like, this was like a magazine. It was like a, a spread. They would go to locations and like photograph. Oh my and gosh. Stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, the same thing with, yes. I was looking at like scans of Victoria's Secret catalogs of the 80s and they are just so different than what you would expect. Like there was so much brand building happening in those mm-hmm. pages. Oh yeah. I, and the, and creating an atmosphere, creating like a feeling. Totally, totally. For the first time, instead of just like, oh, here's the stuff we offer. You can buy it. It's like, no, here's the life we offer. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> and you're and you're invited. <laughs> Catalogs were a major part of the mail when we were kids and teenagers. Like so exciting when one would show up, right? Uh, so we're going to yes. be focusing on those today. But I was thinking like, I mean, I guess I know why catalogs aren't as popular now, right? Uh, yeah, right, oh, right. of course. But yeah. I, according to the Direct Marketing Association, the number of catalogs ever mailed peaked in 2007 and they have been in decline since then. 2007. I'm trying to put myself yeah. back there. What was it like? It was surprising to me because I would have thought it, it seems was late, late, right? Yeah. It seems late in the yeah. game. I wonder if it was like a lot of like, we're hanging on. We're just hanging on. That's what I think. That's what I <laughs> you think. You know, yeah. like we, we've been doing this for so long. We don't know how another way to do it, to get it like, you know, because even like with, with the internet, which I'm sure is where we're going with this. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, you have, you have to like, uh, before like the whole world of the algorithm, like you had to actually go there to look for it. You know, if yeah. like, you wanted something, you were like, you had to like type it in, click, 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 and then like go to the website or whatever. Right. Right. Um, so it was probably like that 2007 might be like that time, like that little time before you know, when it was still, yeah. Okay. I can see it. I can, I'm feeling it. I feel 2007. Yeah. Right now. As we're talking about it, it makes sense to me. Cause that's when I was working at, right. 
And we, yes. we still made a catalog then. It was so expensive. Uh, everything yeah. about it. Like, oh, right? yeah. Yeah. I think I worked there in 2000 with you yes. in 2009. Yeah, 2009. And it was still going then. And we, oh my gosh, like I dreaded the meetings we would have with the catalog team to go over the product assortment because it was never like good enough to them because they wanted the the catalog to be very aspirational. And so we would end Mm -hmm. up buying stuff kind of like how Hamaker Schlemmer is playing this game that was expensive. We would only buy a tiny bit of it and it was just to make the catalog look fancier and make the stylist for the catalog happier, I guess. Oh, that's so interesting. I never realized that, but you're so uh, right. It was like put the the one, you know, luxurious thing would pull up all the other like $3 junk that were so totally there, totally you know, whatever. And we like like I think back to that time period and we were just like burning money on these catalogs. Like we did a special tiny catalog that was just shoes with the cobra snake where we just sent him a bunch, you know who the Cobra Snake is, right? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we sent him a bunch of, like, our most expensive shoes that we had specifically bought because the catalog team requested it. And he was, like, supposed to do this photo shoot of his friends out there, like, party photos. The, sho- mm-hmm. the shoes come back, and they're all, like, completely destroyed. Like, we had to throw them out. Like, they were right. unwearable. Like, how, how else would they have right. been returned? I right. Mean, obviously. Um, the catalog shows up, and we're, you know, like, this is when I was working in shoes, so I was very excited about this because we'd put so much work into it. We were, like, begging and pleading these, like, fancier shoe brands to sell to us. I mean, it was really, really hard. And the book shows up, and everything is super blurry and far away and at night, and you can't tell what any of the shoes are. I absolutely remember that. Do you remember it? But that, <laughs> I, but that was like completely in line with his. The, totally, his it was just did. like a bad so. idea. We didn't sell any of those shoes, by the way. Um, and this was what, like kind of what the catalog had become at that point, where it was like art over function, and so. Mm-hmm. People, it was more of like a social experience, totally, totally, than anything. Yeah. So at this point, you know, you could you could go onto our website, which was constantly crashing, and look up styles that you saw in the catalog and buy them that way, or you could call the number that was in there and order over the phone. I don't think you could like fill out a form and send it in. I think that time was over, but we got a lot. Like we would get like sort of an update from customer service periodically about the catalog performance, you know, et cetera. And it was constantly, like, it was the same message over and over again. Customers are really struggling to figure out what the product shown on the cover is. Customers are very (laughs) confused about what this item is on page three. Uh, Customers are confused about the color of this item. Like, it was because it was all, like, hipstamatic era photography. You know what I'm talking about, right? Right, right. I do, I do. Yeah, it was, like, the filter of our time. And so definitely we were using the catalog at that point as, like, a marketing tool for sure. And we were in that weird time of, like, it's not quite e-commerce era, but -hmm. it's, like, not mail something in and get something four weeks later time either. Right. And, and well, and the difference too was that there weren't very many stores right, at the time. If right. you weren't near a major city, you couldn't really go to one. So you, you relied on this catalog. So the people producing the catalog were making it art to, you know, get you into the stores. But if you couldn't get into the stores, you're calling the line being like, what color orange is this? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. It was, it was a very strange time. We spent so much money on it. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, and we did the catalog for several years beyond 2007 for sure. But apparently, according to the Direct Marketing Association, uh, I read some really weird 
research to get these episodes <laughs> together, can I just say? Um, apparently – That's great. That's great. I love it. There, I mean, there are multiple reasons, none of which are going to shock you, that catalogs began to fall off in 2000, after 2007. One was the recession, right? And oh, right, right. Catalog – I mean, we cannot emphasize enough how expensive catalogs are. Uh, you got to mm-hmm. shoot the stuff. Often these would be like on location, right? You need models. Right. You need a whole staff to do it. Then you need a team that literally builds the catalog, writes the copy, edits the photos, lays out the catalog, all that. Then you need to print it, which is expensive. And then you need to mail it out. And so catalogs are so expensive. So this was like one of the first things that retailers began to just totally cut during Mm -hmm. the recession. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And then, and, and perhaps why the the ones that we're seeing now are more like the ones before these, you know, uh, fancy ones, yeah, destination destination catalogs, because you could just make it on a computer. You're not, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're getting you're getting the like the product shots from like the manufacturer, and you're just putting it in totally, your catalog, totally. Yeah. And then, of course, like the rise of e-commerce, like ordering online becoming easier and easier, just made catalogs redundant. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, even Hammock or Schlemmer, I could go buy stuff from their website right now. Like I don't need to get the catalog in the mail, although clearly you need to. So you know what you've (laughs) wanted your whole life, right? I mean, I'm not sure like where in the world I ever got on this list, but you know, I, I get it. I get it only once a year. It's only the holiday catalog. So (laughs) I'm not sure if this is just like a special thing or what. I think um, it is. Like, I would love to talk to someone who works there and hear more about how they choose this product because I'm sure it's, like, very strategic. It's probably fascinating. Fascinating, yeah. 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 And there's, like, there's meetings upon meetings upon meetings. Totally, totally. (laughs) So if you're listening to this and you know someone who's worked for Hammock or Schlemmer, please send them my way because I have a lot of questions. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com.
St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st. Dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. So we're going to shift gears now into some of the catalogs that really live in our memories that we really loved. Um, And I'm going to get started with Spiegel, which when you and I were preparing for this, we were like, oh, wow. Spiegel was like so editorial. It was so 80s and 90s. And I was looking at 
all of the like photography from this, like the scans I could find from the 80s and the early 90s. And I was like, wow, this looks like a magazine. Like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So it's like styled. Yes. It's like Vogue. It's not even just like a mag. It's like the best magazine. <laughs> the, yeah. the, even the, the way the models are posing, like the way the clothing is styled just yeah I mean like very aspirational like I was looking at scans last night and I was thinking like wow my mom bought stuff from Spiegel but like she never wore it like this like this was like ah just so it it was a magazine right yeah it was a magazine yeah right and it was like delicious my mom also got Spiegel catalog I'm not sure if she shopped there but um I remember it coming in the mail. So I sure. I thought like, oh, I'm going to look into Spiegel. It's going to take all of five minutes, right? No. <laughs> you want to talk about a rabbit hole I went down. Spiegel has been <gasps> through it all. So I'm excited to tell you about it. So I don't know any of this. Okay. Well, after spending the final few months of the Civil War in a Confederate prison camp, Joseph Spiegel moved to, you guessed it, Chicago and open a store what? with the help of his brother-in-law, Henry Liebenstein. Uh, Spiegel started as basically like a furniture store, right? But okay. then the Great Chicago Fire destroyed the Spiegel store. Oh. So, you know, Joseph, he spends some time rebuilding and reopening. And he still is focusing on like furniture and home goods. Fifteen years into Spiegel store part due. Uh, he starts publishing a catalog, but mail order doesn't exist yet, as you all know. So the purpose of the catalog was just to get people from the suburbs to come to the city to shop in the store, which seems like a very expensive gamble, but what do I know? Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, it sure does. (laughs) And so the, you know, the business itself, I mean, it had some ups and downs, right? Uh, running a business is, is like that, but what they found really just made their sales blow up was to start selling on credit. Oh. Interesting, right? Very interesting. Now, what's the do you know what the history of credit is before this or are they absolute pioneers in this whole thing? I mean, you could go to your general store possibly and get credit there, right? Okay, like, so it's like put it on my tab kind of thing. Right. Right. But this was like they were ex- they were selling to so many people as their reach grew and grew with this catalog to get mail order credit is like pretty, pretty wild. And the company's motto was, we trust the people. Basically, everyone could buy on credit from Spiegel. Yeah. So you got to, you got to have a little trust. You got to have, have, have a little bit of trust. Right. So <laughs> in the early 1900s, uh, Joseph Spiegel's son, Arthur, joined the business and he was obsessed with the catalog arm of it. He really felt like this was the future and he was right. So they, the catalog just, it just spread across the entire United States and they updated their motto to be, we trust the people everywhere. So here's here's the thing, like I love it. Uh, what made their credit model different than what we think of as credit now is that there was an interest, right? Oh, it was okay. Free. That's what I was wondering too. So it was free, even better. I know. Why so, would you go anywhere else? Right, right. And so of course their business is just growing and growing. At this point, like the catalog was pretty similar to all the other catalogs of this era that we talked about, where they kind of sell a lot of stuff: home goods, mm-hmm. furniture, guns, tools. At one point, they were selling linoleum flooring. I mean, like, they were just 
all the things. They didn't sell houses, though. That was the one thing they didn't do. Yeah, we, we've got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> um, but Arthur was like, you know, we've got to be innovating here. Like, it's it's not enough that we literally give everyone free credit. We need to do something else. <laughs> and so he was, like, out there, like, trying to figure out new ways to sell to people. That's, like, how this whole system works, right? So in 1909, Spiegel introduced something very iconic to the American consumer. And this is something I would have never guessed, especially knowing what I know of the Spiegel catalog from my youth. It was the teddy bear. What? Yes. It was so successful. Like the first teddy bear. Yeah. Yeah. Like the one named after Teddy Roosevelt, teddy bear. And you could like... (laughs) Anyone could buy it with free credit. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. Yeah. So that was so successful that that Spiegel was like, okay, now we're getting into the toy business. So they started selling a lot of toys. And they were continuing to sort of like gobble up categories, like like all the other catalogs of this era. They really wanted to add clothing to the mix, but it it just did not work. Over and over again, they would find they couldn't afford it. The factory was bad. The fit was bad. People didn't buy it. It was just... It just was not working out. But then they struck gold with a new line named after a fictional designer, the Martha Lane Adams line. Martha Lane Adams line. Yeah. I don't know about this. Not a real person. uh, Okay. People believed it. And we're like, wow, I love Martha Lane Adams. She really speaks to me as a designer. <laughs> um, and Classic. So this, like, launched their clothing business, right? now. So what was, like, the – was this, like, a middle-of-the-road kind of, like, price range? Or was this, like, you know, um, you know, like a access-to-luxury kind of thing? It was pretty middle-of-the-road. At this point, okay. Spiegel is like, we just want to sell as much stuff to as many people as possible. Right. Like, and I wonder if before then, if there were, like, clothing lines for everyday people that were named after people like this. Oh, I'm sure. L- like like the high fashion houses. You think there were. Okay. I just feel so like, saying, like the name is, is, is too specific, right? There's yeah, got to be yeah. an inspiration there. Martha Lane Adams. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's obviously supposed to be like a married woman, right? Uh, Oh, yeah. I I don't know. I think it's really interesting. I couldn't find any images from this time period, sadly, but maybe I'll find them before this episode comes out. But this was very successful for them. But then guess what happens? The Great Depression and World War II. And this has a negative impact for a multitude of reasons. I mean, the Depression part is pretty obvious. But then during World War II, it was very difficult to find inventory to sell. And so Spiegel was like really hanging on by a thread during that time period. And they had to discontinue their free credit policy. So they still sold on credit, but you had to start paying interest. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, So this was like the turning point for that. Right. So was there an unbelievable uproar? It seems like <laughs> people, people it seems like people are like, okay, fine, life sucks. We'll get over it. Yeah, everything else sucks. I'm not surprised this does too. Right, right. Spiegel catalog. But they were also like, okay, like clothing is blowing up for us, but it's kind of also hard to sell clothing via this catalog, right? Yeah. So yeah. In in the 40s, they bought a chain of bankrupt clothing stores that were in the Midwest called Sally. And by 1948, they were operating 168 retail stores, which is a lot. Wow. And it kind of sold everything. 
anything. Wait, and, and how many years did it take to get to 168 stores? Just a few. Stores? Just a few. Oh, my God. Yeah. How, and what, how? The manpower. I know. I know. And just like, I guess, having all the money or something. I don't know. Yeah. Having all, having all the money. Clothing, furniture, electronics, housewares, auto supplies, you name it, they sold it. And by 1960, their sales were greater than $200 million, which is like, like that's like Amazon now, basically. Um, two million people at that point in 1960 had Spiegel credit accounts. Wow. Spiegel was like, we own the world, basically. Like yeah. Amazon, I well, guess. And I'm sure like they stopped their their free lending, but a huge arm of their business just became the the, you know, making money off of their <laughs> Totally. I I have no doubt. And then they were like, you know what we should do? We should start selling pets. What? (laughs) This took a strange turn. I know. So for a few years there, they were selling pets and then they moved away from it because like shipping pets is complicated. Yeah. uh, To say the least. Uh, So they basically, I mean, like this was a humongous ass business by the mid 60s. And this, by then the Spiegel family, I mean, like, you know, Arthur's retiring. I mean, like he's probably passed well past retirement. His father has passed away. So Spiegel actually sold the company um, to like a much larger organization. And that's when like the the Spiegel that we knew as kids began to be born. Because the new identity for Spiegel was fine department store in print. Okay. So the catalog this hadn't was- ever been done before. No, no. And the catalog was just completely revamped. They got rid of all the low-budget items. Mm-hmm. They got rid of all the other nonsense. Like, there's no more, like, pets, furniture, <laughs> that kind of stuff. It was really about upscale apparel and accessories for career women. And by 1980, they started launching, like, legit designer labels. They were like Martha Lane Adams, too. They were like... We're going to start selling Gloria Vanderbilt, for example. That was like a major partnership with them. And in the 80s, they were like flying so high. They did a lot of advertising that really featured some of the like the hottest career women of that time, including Candace Bergen, a.k.a. Murphy Brown. (gasps) Murphy Brown. And Spiegel just like blew up. They expanded their apparel lines. They bought this catalog fashion brand that I remember my mom getting this catalog. It was called Newport News. Oh, I remember Newport News. Right, right. So they oh, bought yeah. that. They bought a bunch of other smaller brands. And, like, they were killing it. And things were actually pretty great through the 90s. But, like, a lot of catalogs, Spiegel disintegrated in this century. But believe it or not, they did not close their business until 2020. Really? Yeah. So that were they 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 were working it was all internet based at that point. Yeah, and it just okay. it just wasn't it wasn't there anymore. Like they didn't change with the times. I think that they were probably by then like their customer was a lot older. It probably had mm-hmm. been following them for a long time and maybe just wasn't into shopping online. And right. it that, just ended. Yeah. Yeah, and then that career girl look is you know, like, eventually was not celebrated. Yeah. Uh, I thought but that man, was so interesting. What a saga. Yeah, for sure. That took a lot of like different, yeah, t- t- different paths. And <laughs> they absolutely tried everything. They're like goldfish. Yes. Uh, I know. Hamsters. Yes. Diamonds. Yes. 
I mean, it was just smart like a, two piece suit, three piece suits. Yes, sure, <laughs> we'll do sure. it. I think Why it not? was like that was like the time, right? Like I think now, if you tried to do that, you would fail immediately, and your like whole life would be ruined somehow financially. But back then. It was like, whatever, are you a white dude? Here's some more money. Like, do whatevs, you know? And also, yeah. And also, I feel like it was like people just like, you know, would buy like one thing and like not return it. And like, just like if it didn't work, they would just figure, I don't know, just figure it out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There were no returns. Yeah. 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 Yeah, So that that was a part of it. But um, yeah. So you're going to tell us the story of a catalog that I think. I feel like only you, me, and Dustin remember, but hopefully some listeners are going to be like, oh, yeah, because, like, when Dustin heard we were going to talk about this, he was really excited. We can't be the only ones, right? (laughs) I I mean, we can't, and it came up very organically, too. It wasn't like you were like, do you remember? It Like, I was like, oh, my God, I remember the best catalog because I loved it so much, especially the holiday one, obviously. Mm -hmm, Obviously. I loved it enough that I made a miniature one that lived in my dollhouse that I wish I still had, but Um, it lived in my dollhouse for many years. (laughs) Like I remember making the big red, like be the the, the giant best logo on the cover as best (laughs) as I could. And that's where the children of the dollhouse shopped for their um, Christmas wish list. I love it. I love it so much. And I can like picture the cover so well. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it was the, the ones that I remember. I mean, there were a couple of different versions, I'm sure. But the ones that I remember were just like a, a white or gray page, solid color, just with the giant bubble, like the giant square bubble letters best in red letters on the front. Yeah. And so once it again, for best. anyone who is like, what are you guys talking about? We're literally talking about a catalog in a company that was called Best, best. which is... No pun intended. The best name ever for anything, <laughs> for right? Anything, for anything ever, the trophy goes to best. Best. Which is not to be confused with best buy. No, don't do it. It's don't not the same. Do it. It's not. It's a trap. <laughs> it's completely different. So best catalog ran from 1957 to 1998. Wow. And, yes. And it started um, with a couple named Sydney and Francis Lewis who lived in Virginia. Um, Sydney was a lawyer, but he also worked with his dad selling encyclopedias. Ooh. And somewhere along the want line, somebody was like, hmm, encyclopedias are great. Everybody wants them. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody. Everybody's doing it, but we got to add a little bit of um little jazz to it. Right. So they decided to add, you know, to their product line and in 1957 um they came out with the the best catalog um which was uh tons and tons and tons and tons of of things. Kind of like the Sears and Roebuck that we talked yeah, about in the yeah. past. So the difference with their business model was eventually um the catalog was what was in the store. So you could go, you would get the catalog in the mail at your house. You would go through it. And it was always really thick. Do you remember being really thick? Like a phone, like a, a phone book. Kind yeah, of. it was. It was like, like talking about these catalogs that had 500 pages. I'm like, oh, no, 
You haven't yeah, met the no, best no, no, no. catalog, okay? Yeah. And I, I remember the pages being, I mean, I don't have one, but I remember the pages being thin and it was like kind of a cross between like, like a hammocker schlemmer with the, the, you know, the manufacturer photographs, but then like, mm-hmm. it felt almost like, um, like a dictionary or something. <laughs> like it felt like, um, that kind of book, like, a like a resource yeah. instead of just a catalog. Um, so anyway, the, it turned into, you know, you would get the catalog in your house, but you could also go to the uh, brick and mortar best stores. And we, <laughs> I know you had one and I, mm-hmm. we had one, but of course I lived a half an hour from everything, but my dad really liked best. And I like, as I'm do, like looking into this, I'm like remembering like this one time he would, you know, buy all my mom's gifts there. And he got her um, a piece of jewelry or something like that. But the idea was you would go into the store and it wasn't like things were set up on shelves Mm -hmm. like stores now. It would be like there would be um, the floor model of everything. So you could test it out. You could feel it. You could pick, you know, pick it up. You could like try it out, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you would go to, you know, the desk or whatever and tell them what you wanted and they would bring it out for you and you would take it home or you would order it and it would be delivered to you. I might be remembering this wrong because I was very young when we would go to Best. Mm -hmm. But I swear, I went there numerous times with my family. It was a place, it was a place you would go for electronics quite frequently, like a stereo or a boom box or what have you. I'm VCR, you know, that kind of stuff. And I remember you would go up and pay at this counter, like a normal purchase, but then you would go walk over to this other area and there was a conveyor belt where the stuff would come out of the back and there was a person who like worked the conveyor belt and then they would pick up your order and call your name and there would be like a ticket on it yeah like you're at at the airport or something yeah yeah and I remember thinking it was so cool you said that and I don't remember it and I couldn't find anything on it so I wonder if this was just like specific to your experience like to your store (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, but it was like you would get the clipboard and you'd fill it out and you'd give it. it. There was a conveyor belt. Oh my gosh! It just came, like I'm seeing it now. There was absolutely a conveyor belt. Since you're, right. you're a kid, this is like literally the coolest thing that can yeah, happen. Yeah, it's the right? coolest thing ever. And like, a, like we thought it was a part of the gimmick, but it was probably just like the most efficient way to get it. <laughs> I know. From like whatever their giant warehouse was with like the thousands of items to you, the consumer waiting for it, like so excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally right. Um, yes, I just remember thinking it was like just like the coolest place ever. Um, yeah. It was very cool. And for me, it was like, it was like, we didn't go shopping very much. So it was an event. It became a whole like destination. Yeah. Pilgrimage, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Totally. Um, Yeah. So what was interesting about this couple that um, I just loved was that they were kind of like artistic. They were really into the art, like the fine arts so it became legendary in um, artist circles that you could bring your art to them and, ex- and get product in exchange. So in that, this wow. couple, Sydney and Francis, they built this huge collection of art. And eventually so much that there's uh, still to this day a, a museum with the art. That's amazing. <laughs> Where is art. the museum? Because I, I want to go. in a... I believe it's in Richmond, Virginia. What? Should we and take a field trip? Nice. We absolutely should take a field trip. Yeah. 
Um, but yes. So another, uh, cool thing that they did, um, with the, uh, with their stores because they were so into, they were just kind of like, you know, these artist types that got into this whole like catalog product thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, that they, in the 1970s, they created nine very unorthodox stores, um, that were built by an architecture firm called uh, Sculptures in the Environment. What? That name already. And, I'm, like, excited. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, um, these nine stores were kind of, like, um, architectural marvels at the time. And so one of them, for example, was a store that had trees growing out of it. And then another one, like, looked like it was completely peeling, like, the facade of it was, like, peeling apart (laughs) but like in a cool way like you didn't really know where the door was kind of thing like that that kind of um architecture um and these stores would like appear from time to time in their um on the cover of their catalogs that is crazy i mean once again we're talking about a place where you could go to buy like a boom box yeah (laughs) i know and i'm thinking about the boom boxes too like i can see them yeah my mind's eye um but i think it was just like that stuff was like really popular and cool at the time so it was probably like right up front and like you know yeah yeah became a huge part of their their product line in the 90s or whatever wow i mean i of course, the best and a lot of these other we're going to talk about some other places too. just got their butts kicked in this like century because places like Walmart started selling all the things you could buy from best, you know, and it would be oh, yeah. cheaper and easier, more accessible to more people. And yeah. and, you know, there was no conveyor belt involved. No, I know. They took all the whimsy out of it. They really did. They just robbed us of, of so much, <laughs> including that conveyor belt. Well, there was another brand that or company and slash catalog that did something similar to best it was called service merchandise and we did not have a service merchandise store where i lived but i remember there being one in maryland it was like stuff was always in maryland you know and so uh we would like have to drive down there like if it was something really specific like it'd be like a whole family driving to freaking maryland to go to service merchandise but it was similar to best in that like you didn't walk into the store and like all the product was just stocked there right you mm-hmm. ordered it. It was like a showroom model. You ordered it, and then you would pick it up at the door or have it shipped to you. And the reason they did that, which, I mean, I don't know if this is why Best was doing this, is it, like, basically eliminated theft. Oh, okay. Completely. And I was like, oh, yeah. I guess you're right. And it's like mm-hmm. the, it's kind of like the general store model. Yeah. Of, like, yeah, it's all behind sure. the counter. But, I mean, that would never fly now. Like, people no. want stuff right away, right? Well, it's, I was going to say, it's like what our attention spans <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's a problem. Exactly. It's like, and yeah, if it's not like instant gratification, like, no thank you. I know. It's true, right? <laughs> thank you, Jess, for spending about four hours talking about catalogs with me. Yes, there were pee breaks, but still, it was a long conversation. And some of the most fun I've had in a long time. Uh, Jess will be back next week to talk about Delia's, Alloy, Lillian Vernon, and so much more. In the meantime, you can find her on Instagram as at Jess in Space. That's with one S. And also on TikTok, where she shares some really awesome videos. Also, as Jess in Space. Yes, still one S. And don't worry, all of this will be in the show notes. Ultimately, catalogs are kind of the original slow fashion. I mean, the slow fashion that you could buy. Let's, 
I guess the original slow fashion was making our own clothes, but going one step beyond that, like if we were going to buy clothes, this is pretty slow. I mean, because back in the heyday of catalogs, you might wait weeks or months to receive your order. So you didn't make the decision to purchase lightly at all. Returns were, for the most part, not an option. So you measured yourself. You thought about all the ways you would wear something. And when it arrived, you treasured it and cared for it, getting the maximum wear from it. Because you knew that the next garment would, at soonest, arrive in weeks or months. Obviously, that's not the time we live in now. I could order something now and literally have it by tomorrow. And just as easily, I could drop it back in the mail to return later that day. It makes decisions faster with less time to consider if it's the right thing for me, if I'm going to wear it often, all those things that we should be thinking about. I'm certainly not going to take the time to measure myself and compare it to the size chart, which probably is inaccurate anyway. Yes, it's no surprise to me that the rise of e-commerce, aka online shopping, happened alongside the rise of fast fashion. It's easier and easier to shop faster and faster, to buy as much stuff as often as possible with the minimal amount of effort. Retailers have worked to streamline the checkout process over the last decade, from saving your payment info by convincing you to create an, an account in exchange for, you know, like an introductory discount, I'm sure. You're like, oh, oh, that's why they do that? Uh, to allowing you to pay via one touch with Apple Pay or a simple code via Shopify Pay. Apps will allow you to check out just with facial recognition or the passcode to your phone. That's because retailers saw us abandon our virtual carts over and over again when checking out took too long or felt remotely inconvenient. Even an extra minute of entering our credit card information or our shipping address gave us too much time to reconsider the purchase. I am not kidding. When I say that at every one of my jobs, the e-commerce team was working on making checkout faster and faster. And when conversion, aka the percentage of people actually purchasing after visiting the site, when conversion is down, the checkout experience is the first thing that gets checked. Is that a pun? I don't think so. But the team asks, you know, like, is a link broken? Is something wrong with the login page? Are, are not enough people creating accounts? Should we develop an app to make things faster and faster? Yeah, that's why there are so many apps that are specific to one brand, to one retailer at this point. These are the things that we would discuss in meetings when sales and conversion were disappointing. It wasn't, maybe it's the product, maybe it doesn't fit well, maybe it's lower quality. It wasn't, maybe people just don't feel like shopping or the economy is in a weird place. No, it was always that we were making customers take too much time to check out allowing them to second guess the purchase. As I always say, if we're going to make substantial change, we have to work together. And step one is acknowledging and understanding the ways in which the industry has manipulated us into feeling as if we are starving for new clothes, of taking away our chance to think about what we're about to buy. The industry has intentionally prevented us at every turn 
from being thoughtful about how and where we spend our money. Are you feeling angry thinking about that? Well, guess what? So am I. Let's change that, okay? Let's show others how to spot the manipulation, how to see and understand and avoid the scam that is the fast fashionification of just about everything we buy. Let's prove to others that a sustainable way of life doesn't mean deprivation and misery, that we don't have to sacrifice style for ethics and vice versa. We just get the opportunity to think more about what we have and really commit to things that we know we're going to love. We all have an impact on the planet and the people around us. I cite this example all the time, and I'm going to cite it again. Amazon wouldn't be the unethical juggernaut that it is if everyone hadn't started shopping with them regularly. And I will be the first to tell you that I was a part of that. It started for me in LA with like, well, I don't have a car and I need to get cat litter, cat food, cleaning stuff, what have you. Things that I couldn't carry from the subway station or the bus stop, right? And over time, it turned into, okay, well, it's also where I buy vitamins, soap, sheets, shampoo, all the things, underwear, tights, all of it. You multiply that behavior by millions of people and suddenly you have Amazon as the biggest retailer of clothing and so many other things in the United States. It happened with all of us doing the same thing at the same time. That's why I also believe that we have the power to move things in another more sustainable, more ethical, more thoughtful, more meaningful direction. Because I've seen how our collective consumption habits have created entire trends, industries, apps, and companies. You know that I'm always skeptical of black and white thinking. Maybe that's just something that comes with age or something that comes from just thinking about things an awful lot. But you know what I mean. Like, I don't ever want to be like, this thing is right, this thing is wrong. Because unfortunately, in the world we're living in, we're all living within a system where nothing is purely good. And sure, there are some things that I think come pretty close to being purely bad. But even if we were digging into the layers of the badness, we'd probably uncover someone along the way with good intentions. This is where progress, not perfection, comes into play. Acknowledging and accepting that we are not set up for an easy, best, or perfect choice is so important, but we can't surrender to that and give up. That's not an option. You can't, I'm sorry, if you send me a message or comment on a post on Instagram or what have you saying, Sorry, but my impact will never be as big as Amazon, so whatever. I'm going to ignore you, <laughs> okay? I mean, I'll be upset about it, but I'm not going to engage with you because you know as you're typing that or saying that, that we all have a part in this. Yeah, Amazon needs to change. The retail industry as a whole needs to change. Fast fashion needs to stop existing. Some of that will come via laws, but some of that will come from us. It will come from us pushing for laws. It will come from us buying less. It will come from us demanding change from these companies who will listen to us. Nothing is going to change without us. Make decisions thoughtfully. Assume the responsibility for the lifespan of the things we buy. Know that nothing is actually disposable. Buy less. It's so important. There is no future 
for us if we don't stop buying the way we have. These things are impactful, especially when we are modeling this behavior for those around us and educating others. Significant change will require a larger societal behavioral shift, and that starts with us. Social trends start with a few. They spread through more and more groups until they become second nature for everyone. You can see that with the growth of Amazon, right? Like some people bought books from them, then some people were buying cat litter, then some people were buying everything, then we were all buying everything, right? That's how we got to where we are today. What if we did a reverse of the Amazonification of our world? What if we did the reverse of the fast fashionification, the slow fashionification of the world? I, I love that. And I know that we can do that because I saw how fast fashion rose up in my lifetime. I saw how it touched the lives of all the people around me. We can do this. I know that we will do this. One person can't change the world alone, but real change will happen when we work together. And I hope you'll join me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing here, please leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. Seriously, it brings more people in. Uh, Or even more importantly, recommend this show to another person. Send them an episode you think they'll really love. Get them to join the slow fashion movement. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. And thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. See you next week for the second half of Catalogapalooza. Bye. (laughs) 